0: Nation Reaching Nation is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural local and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and ideas of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around
1: you. We are in our final lesson in my Christmas liturgy, and this is the dark lesson of the lesson. So last week we talked about um, Shepherds coming and what a joyous, hospitable event this is. And this week's lesson is the unwise wise men. Um, a lot of times there's unintended consequences to our actions, right? Like giving and poverty and all this kind of stuff. Um, and this is this is really where the story gets very, very real. The person who introduced me to and kind of sent me on this whole we-need-to-rethink-Christmas quest uh, writes a lot about the persecuted church. And he talks about in Somalia, uh, he worked there as a missionary. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Black Hawk Down, the warlord who's there controlling everything and making life bad, that's the guy. Like, he's met him. Um, And so there had been about, I think he said 200 Christians or so in the country that had lived there unharassed for years and years and years. And then when that whole situation happened, all of these organizations, you know, the UN and uh, WHO and every other humanitarian organization moves in, which means the price of rent goes up. Uh, which means, you know, the price of food, goes, like all 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 the stuff goes up because now there's much more demand. It also means there's lots of jobs coming in, there's lots of money coming in, and there's a lot of Christian agencies that are giving, you know, preferential treatment to the Christians. And so, basically, he said in a uh, in a one or three month time period, they went from having been there for generations, unharassed to being largely wiped out by the locals. And so that sent him on a quest to figure out what happened. And he realized what happened was the introduction of all of these outside species of organizations and the cash that came with it and the gifts that came with it and the preferential treatment. So he narrowed it down to four things. I don't know if I'll remember them all, but let me try. Uh, They brought in Bibles for them in Ugaritic. Ugaritic has, I think it's in Ugaritic, uh, Ugaritic has 240 characters, 220 characters. It's a ridiculous amount of characters in the alphabet. And so their Bible is you know, the size of a phone book. So if you're a Christian living in a persecuted context, carrying home a phone book... It's obvious. Right, it's very obvious. But also if your family is going to persecute you, it's really hard to hide a Bible like that. And the worst thing is they're illiterate. Uh, so largely illiterate, so they couldn't even read this. It was just so awesome to have. I mean, if you can't read, and I go, "Hey, here's God's word in your language." Yeah, you won it. Even if you can't read it, just to say that you have it. I mean, I have ten Bibles in my office. I can't read because they're in some other language, but it's like, yeah, well, it's cool. I've got somebody went to this country and brought me this Bible. Like that's really cool. Um, but I'm not getting killed for it. Uh, so the Bibles was one thing. The job was another. Uh, they started doing baptisms publicly for people, um, and so a lot of a lot of our a lot of our work, even when it's well-meaning, can have unintended consequences. Uh, and sometimes it's the nature of the business. You know, when you live and work in a closed country um, and people come to Christ, Satan is going to attack and persecution is going to happen. It doesn't matter how smooth you are, how hidden you are, or how whatever, it happens. Um, and I think this is according to God's plan. When we look at Acts, we see that the church is scattered, and this is part of God's plan to send missionaries throughout the known world at the time. Um, And so I don't want to place persecution outside of God's control or outside the norm. It is, but I also want to say, well, as an outsider coming in, I don't want to be the elephant in the garden that stomps around trying to help the field mouse and winds up killing him, which probably none of us do. But this is sort of what happens here in this story. Again, part of God's sovereign plan. So we'll be in Matthew uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1 through 12 to start with. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped. Then they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way." So, in this passage, in verse 4, it says that he inquires where the Christ is to be born. Um, again, that term, Christ, is in Hebrew would be Messiah, and everyone knows that the messianic person is going to be a conquering king who's going to smash their enemies. Um, Herod is in a very precarious position, okay, in the sense that he's not Jewish, and neither is he Roman. Uh, he's from Edom. He's from, he's an Edomite. And so the Jews hate them. He is very hated by the people for many reasons. I'll, I'll talk about that more in a minute. <clears throat> but during this time, right before this period, you have a group of people who keep gathering out in the desert and creating problems. So at this point, Palestine is a Roman province. It's a Roman province that's like the Wild West because every time they go in, they create such problems that it causes this uprising. So you have these brothers, their names are the Maccabees. Um, and they wind up gathering the desert, raise armies, and every time one of them would start doing this, they would get further and further and further in their military conquest. And so it built this sense of uh, messianic hope of like, man, this must be the time that the Messiah is going to come. So this was a Roman province where basically the emperor would send people to fail. Like, this is your last chance. You've already messed with me. Um, You've already upset me. You're already on my bad list. I'm going to give you... Palestine, go rule it, uh, keep it from blowing up and we'll see if I can take you off my blacklist. And now Herod is hearing the Messiah, again in English we translate this Christ, but he's hearing, oh great, there's another gathering somewhere with another new king. Um, and so this is kind of the the background setting for this story. Yes, he is a terrible person, but he's also a terrible person with a terrible boss. Um, I, th- I think uh, a lot of people don't really know where the wise men came from. There's a lot of guesses. Some people say uh, Iran. That is that is certainly an option. Um, I think that... uh it says from the east. It says from the east, yeah. Um, let's look at Isaiah 60. This is uh, verses 4 to 5. Um, it says, Lift up your eyes and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Uh, am I in the right passage? Verse 4 or 5. This is not it at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah There it is. Sorry, it should be 5 to 6. Um, then you shall see and be radiant. You shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those of Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kidar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nebioth shall minister to you, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my house. That's a lot of names that we don't typically think about, but uh Midian is probably the city of Medina, uh which is in Saudi Arabia. Uh Sheba The Queen of Sheba, she is from Yemen, modern-day Yemen. Um, And then Kedar, the son of Ishmael, his name is Kedar. And so this would be the Ishmaelites who were known to be in Saudi Arabia. So those three names right there, this prophecy in Isaiah, but also the fact of what the gifts are. So frankincense, actually, I, I don't know if it's the only place, but I know like the major place in the world where it's grown is Saudi Arabia. So chances are these were actually... Today, what we would call Arabs, um, coming and and worshiping, uh, worshiping Jesus. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether they're Iranian, whether they're Arab. I think it's a really cool prophecy either way. In Isaiah, you know, is that talking about them coming and worshiping Jesus? Is it talking about future before the throne? Either way, um, obviously, with my interest in the Middle East, I'm I'm hopeful that that this speaks of some kind of future salvation for them where they turn to Christ. Um, But uh, it could be speaking of of this time as well. Uh, A lot of the early church fights slash discussions where people would lose and get kicked out to the east, they would wind up in Saudi Arabia. So in ancient times, that phrase the east is not speaking of the far east like China. It is speaking of uh, Arabia by and and large. Um, So these men, these wise men were some kind of astrologer, magician, professor of stars, who knows. Uh, They come and ask a despotic king who himself is on the bubble, right? His bosses are really watching him. So he's already got these tendencies to be narcissistic and tyrannical, and his boss is just waiting for him to fail. And then they come and say, where is the new king of the Jews? This is the most terrifying thing to happen in any totalitarian government in the world, right? The very worst person to be in any country is the runner-up in a failed election, right? You don't live long, right? You just you, you, you go to jail, you disappear. Um, and I mean, another worst thing to be is like a, a former president who's defeated by a runner-up because the same thing happens to you. There's no, I mean, in, in our culture here, in in our society, there's lots of room for opposition. We kind of celebrate having opposition and lively debate and all like. In most other countries, though, once you have power, you really just want to stamp it out and keep control, um, which our politicians want to keep control too. They just do it differently. Um, so he, they come in and they ask, "Where is this, this king going to be born?" He is the Messiah. And Herod does something. Uh, it's, it, in verse three, it says that he's troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Right? Obviously, if you've got the guy with the nuke button, and that guy gets scared, the rest of us are scared because if he accidentally pushes it because he's scared, that affects all of us. Right? We nuke Russia, they nuke us, we all die. You know, that's that's just how it works. Um, and, and so it's not quite on grand a scale as that, but when Herod gets scared, everybody gets scared. With him, with them. Um, And so he calls in the chief priests and the scribes. And I think, you know, my views on politics have changed a lot over the years. Not necessarily my my personal views on like uh, how I think about the issues, but more my role of what do I think Christians should be doing in society has changed. So, for example, um, I went to a political convention, uh, like on the national scale, when I was 19. I had to, like, run for office to go to this. This was the year that uh, George W. Bush became president. Um, I had to run for office. I beat a judge to go as a delegate to this thing. Um, So back then, like, I was being told, like, man, if you're Christian, you vote, you do all all this stuff, and um, thankfully God pulled me out of that. But I think sometimes we feel really affirmed when the powers that be look to us for advice, and we have to be careful. You know, We're never going to get called before... Well, I say we're never going to. We're probably not going to be called before kings to, to tell them, here's what God says. But there's a lot of times in our own life where people go, hey, you're a Christian. Tell me what the Bible says about this. And there's going to be the temptation to do what they do, which is to be dumb. And so they know, what's this guy looking for? He's not wanting a good Bible lesson. He's not seeking... He, like I, I can just see them being part of a mission team. Like they're going back to them. Like, oh man, Herod, he's so close. He's 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 asking about the Messiah. He wants to follow the Messiah. Like, no, he wants to kill the Messiah. Um, so sometimes we really have to be wise. Uh, when we lived in the Middle East, you know, people might come to us and say, "Hey, can I have a Bible?" And at first, you know, we get really excited about that. We're like, "Oh man, this guy wants a Bible," and we assume, well, there's only one reason why you'd want a Bible. That's to follow Jesus. Well, or to find out, is so-and-so a missionary or not? That could be another reason. Um, and so you, you just have to learn to be a lot more questioning. But, uh, like little naive infants, they just spill their guts and they say, In Bethlehem, this is where the Messiah is going to be born. And so, um, he, uh, they kind of spill, they spill all the beans here so Jesus came for the lowly Jewish shepherds we see that in the story uh, and he came for the rich Arab astrologers we see this in the story where the where the uh, these men came I mean the, the gifts that they're giving these are gifts fit for a king uh, you don't come into a king's presence empty-handed you give some kind of gift which is a token of loyalty and patronage so uh, you know in, in this society in any kind of uh, monarchy, you want to have a good relationship with whoever's the head. And so I give to you and you give to me. It's a very utilitarian type arrangement. Um, so they bring gifts. They were definitely rich. He came for Jews, for Gentiles, the rich, the poor. So we've seen all of these things in the story so far. So let's, let's turn the page and let's look more at Herod more closely. So these guys were very naive in, uh, the wise men were very naive in how they initiated their questions, they went straight to the guy who's the last guy, should be the last guy to find out about a new king being born. Um, and he's the most worried. So if you start studying ancient Israeli history, it gets really confusing because Herod and all of his sons are also named Herod. And so it gets really confusing to keep them all apart. So this the one in this story is Herod the Great. Uh, So he is known for being very, very treacherous. He killed both of his sons. Uh, He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law and his wife's grandfather. Okay, that's just family relations that he killed. Um, when When he was on his deathbed and realized he was about to be dying, he ordered the killing of all of his top advisors so that while they would not be crying over his death, they would be crying at his death. Um, f- thankfully, this order was not actually followed out. Um, because he was not Jewish and because he was trying to make peace, not make peace, but he was, from a very pragmatic standpoint, trying to rule the Jews well, um, and by well I mean control them, uh, he would he would do certain very Jewish things. So he's the one who beautified the temple. Um, And they said that if you had not seen the temple in your life, you had seen nothing beautiful. That's how beautiful the temple was supposed to have been. Um, So he did things like that, where he really threw them a bone and did nice things like try to beautify the temple. Um, Previous, uh, or or later the Romans would come in and and completely destroy it. Um, He would not eat pork as a measure to try to uh, ingratiate himself to the Jews. So he would observe their kosher laws as a way of trying to fit in. But he's not actually Jewish, and they all knew it. Um, in, in South Louisiana, we have, we have this thing where, where some of us are real Cajuns, and some of us just live in the state. Um, and so I have, a, I have a buddy of mine. Uh, he's telling me something about Cajun cooking, and he's telling me about the person he learned this from. And my first question was, "What's their last name?" Okay, and it was like Smith or something like that, right? Not a Cajun last name. (laughs) And I wasn't—I wasn't trying to find out. That was my way of saying, like, not—not a real Cajun, not a real Cajun. Okay. So even though, like, we all live down there, um, and even though I'm not actually born there, lived there, okay, there is this—there is this like ever so slight difference between the true Cajuns and the. People who just live there. Um, (laughs) And so this same kind of thing is there. Like everybody knows he's not a real Jew. And he knows it too. And he hates them for it. They hate him for it. It's a hate-hate relationship. Um, They said, because he would not eat pork, and this is a play on words, They said it was better to be his pig than it was to be his son. If you're his son, he might kill you. If you're his pig, at least since he doesn't eat pork, you're safe. So this is a terrible, terrible person. Like imagine, um, you know, the world's most like one of these guys with like a children, an army, children's army or something like that. Like that's this guy. So Joseph uh, receives a dream. We'll start reading in verse in verse thirteen. It says now when they had departed, behold the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "Rise." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled uh, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod died, behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, appeared to Joseph in a dream, uh, in Egypt saying, "Rise, take the child and mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." He rose and took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets that it might be fulfilled, he should be called Nazarene. So the birth narrative ends on this note of Mary, Joseph, Jesus running for their lives and the armies of Herod rolling in behind them and slaughtering babies. Um, This raises all kinds of questions. Why don't we include this in our Christmas movies, Christmas stories, uh, Christmas pageants? I think it would be really moving to do this. Uh, But a lot of times we end the Christmas story at the happy part without thinking Um, really why Jesus came. And you you can't think about Christmas without thinking about Easter. Jesus came to die for our sins. We are sinners. We've done all manners of evil. And here we have a very evil person coming in right behind Jesus, trying to do evil to him, but instead just does it to whoever he can find to cover his bases. Uh, And so it really puts an exclamation point on the problem of human sin and God's solution. The fact that Satan has, from the beginning of time, tried to stamp out the line of the Messiah till now, um, and the fact that God keeps intervening and preserving the line of the Messiah so this is this is a very violent story, and in this story we see that Jesus becomes an international immigrant he 's fleeing what in his wake becomes a war zone and he 's trying to get out in advance i 'm um, I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know there's a great answer to. And this was asked by uh, some underground pastors in China to a, a, someone I know. And they basically said, so Joseph got a dream. Yeah. Why didn't any of the other parents get a dream? But God could have saved them too, right? They weren't the same.
0: It would have that much action might have tipped off.
1: That's true. Could have. But if you're the parent, okay, imagine being, you know, pastor of First Baptist Bethlehem and parents come in and say, Joseph and Mary, somehow they knew it was coming and they got out of town. Why did God let my baby die? I mean, you could say, well, to fulfill prophecy. But if you're holding a dead child in your hands, the fact that your dead child fulfills prophecy, that's not very. Satisfying, and, today's act,
0: today's answer is because
1: it's which is also not very satisfying. You know, I'm like like, like there's no an, there's no answer. Satisfying. There's no answer. A... Yeah. So I'm I'm not going to necessarily try to provide an answer to that. But what I want to give is this is actually a message of hope. I know it sounds like it's not, um, but. We always think of how do we trust God in the good times, which really means how do we celebrate his victories? And we know from Job and other places that we get both good things and we get trials and other things from God as well. Um, And if if our spirituality is one-sided, where we only know how to celebrate when God is doing good things, what do we do when the good things aren't happening? Right? We either wind up with a really messed up theology of like, oh, your faith isn't strong enough. Oh, you're harboring sin. Which these could be true reasons. You, know? you sin, God will judge you. But it also could be that God just has you here for a season. Again, think back to the story of Joseph. I keep going back to this story. But he's in prison through no fault of his own for years of his life. And it's all according to God's plan to save a whole people. To save that whole region of the world. So I think we need to build a bigger theology which incorporates despair, suffering, pain, etc., and still embraces belief and worship even in those contexts. So let's look at this passage from Jeremiah, uh, which is Jeremiah uh, thirty-one, fifteen to 17 because this is what he's quoting. He goes, oh, all of this is to fulfill what Jeremiah said. I mean, how many of you read this, a voice is heard in, was heard in Rama. You're like, oh yeah, I get it. I remember reading this my whole life. I mean, I've grown up in the church. I remember reading this from a kid all the way up until a few years ago. And I go, this is not an explanation. This doesn't even make, this is gibberish. Well, it's not gibberish. I just didn't know enough. I still don't. Jeremiah 31. Yep. So in 31.15, it says almost verbatim what that says. It says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, and bitter we- weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because her children are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country." Uh, If you look up to verse 9, chapter 31 verse 9 says, "...with weeping they shall come, with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn." So, in the passage in Jeremiah, this is actually a time of messianic hope. Why does God give messianic hope? He gives messianic hope because there is despair. In Jeremiah, they are despairing because they are being led into exile. And the place where there's a staging ground is Rama. Interesting. So, uh, the, as people are being led away, they're being corralled in this one place, which is Rama. I mean, they're having to walk past the grave of Rachel, in Ramah, on their way as they watch Bethlehem and Israel fade into the rearview mirror, and they're headed into exile. And so as they're going into exile, in the same way like as they went into slavery in Egypt, as they came out, all along the way, God gives them these promises of, hey, you're going to go through this for a time, and then you're going to come out. God predicted to Abraham, hey, I'm going to, you know, your children's children's children are going to go into bondage in the land of Egypt, but I'm going to be with them, they're going to be here, here's how long, and then I'm going to lead them out. And that's exactly what he did. And so they are being torn from their homes, being staged up in Ramah, and then led into Assyria. And this is where they are. They are right next to the grave of Rachel, which begs... This is like when you look up a word in a dictionary, it's like, oh, it it means this other word. And you have to look up that word, and like three words later, you figure it out. All right, so let's, let's figure out Why is the death of Rachel a central point of tragedy for Israel? This is in Genesis 35. Uh, Genesis 35, 15-17 So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel, which means house of God. Then they journeyed from Bethel, where they were some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when the labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoi, but the father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, where to this day Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So let's remember our story of Jacob. Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. He worked seven years and was tricked. Everyone goes, well, how can you be tricked? How can you marry someone that you don't, like, how did you not figure this out? Well, Middle Eastern weddings, particularly in Bedouin culture, a lot of times they're fully covered. Um until they get to like the marriage tent, and there's the big unveiling. And so that's how you get tricked. Uh, so Laban tricks him, and then he works another seven years um, for Rachel. Rachel was his favorite. She gave him Joseph, and she gave him Benjamin. God bless Leah, who gave him all of his other sons. And so Leah keeps you know, cranking out sons like she's a baby factory. Uh, Rachel is largely barren, and so this is a point of stigma between the two of them. And in childbirth, his favorite wife dies, and she's despairing. And the midwives say, don't despair, God's given you another son. Which to us might not seem like a fair trade, but in this this culture, in this time, this is all Rachel wants to do. She knows that this guy's worked 14 years for her. She's seen her sister give son after son after son. It's been a huge point of shame. And finally, she gives him a second son. And then she dies. And so in her death both she is comforted knowing she's given a son, um, and Jacob is comforted with the fact that he's given a son. This is why uh, Joseph's kind of trick to get Benjamin to Egypt, to stage the fact that he stole the cup, to put him in jail so that the father would come, this is why that was such an elaborate plot and such an effective plot. So we start with one of the, the early patriarch stories of Israel, And we say, okay, here's a moment of tragedy, like individual tragedy, where at this time of individual tragedy, God gives a son. And this son is a blessing to the family. Now we fast forward to Jeremiah, where they're being staged up in Ramah and being held there on their way out, which Ramah is right past Bethlehem. And so this is about the place where Rachel's grave is. And Jacob reminds them, hey, you're not the only people to cry at this spot. Which doesn't sound like comfort, right? But it is comfort, because he's saying, you're not alone. Do you remember Rachel? By the way, her grave is right there. We're standing by the graveside of Rachel. Do you remember her? She was weeping in childbirth, but God gave her a son. So at her moment of greatest despair, God gave her hope. And so here you're going into your moment of greatest despair, and God is giving you hope. So now we fast forward back to Matthew and we can see Rachel is weeping over the slaughter of the innocents, right? So, so Matthew takes story in Genesis, story in Jeremiah, and the present situation and kind of ties a nice little bow and puts those all together in this, in this story ring. Um, and so she's, she's weeping over her children, her own child who died, or sorry, herself who died and then got a son, Her children, Israel, who are going into uh, exile, and now these babies who have been killed, and in all three places, but there is hope. And so, yes, these babies are, are are dead, the parents are wailing just like Rachel, but the Messiah is here. And so there's you know, Matthew is not doing something weird where he quotes this random passage from Jeremiah. He's quoting a very specific set of events of remember your darkest trial as a people, it would have been the exile. Now, at the exile, if you told them, hey, remember your darkest trial as a people, that would have been the exodus. And so, when people are going through exile, you have to remember your greatest trial. You have to remember these dark periods in your life and in the lives of other believers where we can go, okay, God overcame this, 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 this. These people suffered, 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 suffered. And now here I am, you know, on the timeline. I'm way up here. So, yes, I'm suffering, but let me put my suffering in light of their suffering, okay? This is all just part of human suffering. Let me put my hope in light of their hope, though. They're all looking forward towards the Messiah. And in this story, He's here. The Messiah is here. So, Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic hope of every age, in every period of despair in Israel's history. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And every time they're in bondage, it's we need need a deliverer, and God sends them Moses. And so Moses is is kind of this prefiguring of what does a deliverer look like. And then the exile comes, it's we need a deliverer, and they're brought out of bondage. Um, And now it's the Romans are here, Herod's here, he's just killed a bunch of babies, we need a deliverer. And Matthew says, hey, he's here, just like it was told. So if we ask why, we don't say this in a a pat pat kind of way, like a Christian bumper sticker. Oh, to fulfill prophecy. Uh, Yes, it's to fulfill prophecy. But the prophecy is, it's not just a prophecy. It's the prophecy. This is the one we want to be fulfilled the whole time, right? All of the crazy sexuality stuff in Genesis, all of the stigma with barrenness and trying to have sons and all of this progression is all looking for this one prophecy to be fulfilled, which is God with us, which is now being fulfilled. I think the second reason we could say in terms of why goes beyond just to fulfill prophecy, Um, and I would say this is to identify with human suffering. Jesus is not a stranger, even from childbirth. He's not a stranger to human suffering. And we see this through his whole life, right? He dies a brutal death on the cross. So when we say that Jesus, oh, he identifies with all this stuff in our life, I mean, imagine being the kid that gets out. Something bad is happening. I mean, we see this kind of stuff happening on the news all the time, but we're kind of distant from it, right? We see Syria being leveled by multiple different groups, one of the groups being its own government. And there's some kind of distance, but imagine those kids that get out, being the one that got out and remembering, man, I had friends there that didn't get out. Like Your life is just associated with suffering. This is a formative time that suffering is just bonded to who you are. And so for you know, the millions of refugees in the world today, Jesus is not a stranger from them. He's not a suburban Jesus that has never broken a fingernail. He's someone who's had to run for his life and take refuge and hide from someone trying to kill him, just like millions today have had to do. So he's identifying with human suffering. i will say the third reason uh, is part of Matthew's concern is showing that Jesus is the new Moses, uh, the new and greater Moses. So obviously there's another event that this slaughter of innocence hearkens back to, and that goes back to Exodus, which we've been teaching prior to this series. And Pharaoh, trying to stamp out the, 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 the prominence of the Hebrew people, and I would say Satan's goal behind that is to stamp out the Messiah, uh, was to start killing babies and throwing them into the river. And in this time, God sends His Deliverer. In, in that moment, this is their greatest despair, and this is when the Deliverer comes. Slips right through the fingers of Pharaoh and his army, and sails down the river, winds up, ironically, in Pharaoh's house. And so, showing Jesus as the new Moses, here we have King Herod, the, the new and worser Pharaoh, If I can say worser. And we have Jesus, the new and better uh, Moses, Jesus slipping through the fingers as he's trying to kill babies in order to stamp out uh, the Messiah. And I would say, finally, this harkens to to Israel's most dangerous story, which is slavery in Egypt um, and their deliverance, their primary deliverance, which is the Exodus. So if you start studying the period of the exile and after the exile, you realize that the way that they maintained their spirituality, the way that their spirituality became real. They had a bunch of fake stuff before where God says do sacrifices. All right, I'm going to do sacrifices to check that box. Okay, now I'm going to go to the grove and be a part of the orgy to worship uh, you know, Ashtaroth. Or I'm going to sacrifice my children to Molech. Or I'm going to get involved in Canaanite practices. Oh, it's Friday again? All right, let's go back to the synagogue. Let's go back to the temple. Uh, let's do another sacrifice because that's what God wants. And so in in Isaiah uh, chapter 1, this is why God says, who's ordered this? You know, your new moons, your Sabbaths, all of this. You should read Isaiah 1 in the message. Don't look down on me. Um, (laughs) The colloquial language that he puts this in. Basically, there's one line where he says, your next prayer meeting, I'm going to turn my head the other way. It's like, wow, that's intense to think about it in modern church language. But this is what's going This is what's going on. And so during all of these times, as they've been let off and are now in captivity in foreign lands, see before it was just outside oppressors coming in. Now they're the minority in a very evil pagan society. Um, their way of reconnecting with God was to remember, to remember the exodus and to remember the hope that came and to trust this. And so now we have like two points of history where they're again in in epically dire situations, and they have hope in the Messiah. Um, I'll leave you you with this kind of question, which is, you know, you think about Jesus returning to Bethlehem in adult time and realizing, hey, there's nobody here my age. Not that he didn't know, he knew. Um, But to just kind of, from an experiential standpoint, go to a place and it's like seeing a, a bombed-out city or, um, you know, to be a Holocaust survivor and go revisit a camp or something. You know, just imagine Jesus walking back through Bethlehem. Um, and imagine being the parents and realizing this is, this is the guy, who one, who got the dream, but also is the cause, right? Our, my baby got killed because he was trying to find this guy. Um, maybe this is why Jesus says in Mark, you know, a prophet is not appreciated in his hometown, Maybe that's something that he felt and experienced. But I want to, I want to encourage you through this lesson. I know that this is a very dark one. I think we all experience pain and tragedy in our life. Um, we have a way of, of personalizing that, of my pain is more real than your pain, my problem is more real than your problem. Uh, then we hear someone share a problem, like, oh, that's not a problem. Let me tell you about my problem. Um, and the reality is we have to put our problem. <laughs> no, no, no elbowing spouses. <laughs> Uh, You know, we compare problems as to who has the greater right to their grief or misery or whatever. Um, And the reality is we have to put our suffering in light of all of God's people's suffering. Um, But even in this story of dark tragedy and suffering, there is hope. And so we we need to apply that into our own life. You know, when we're going through despair, church can be one of the hardest places on a Sunday to be. Um, when we're going through tragedy, because a lot of times, and I would say this is one way that church, not our church, but the church needs to transform, is we need to have songs and teaching and preaching that is more inclusive of of both sides of how God acts with humans. Um, I mean, I've gone through dark times in my own life, and Sunday was the hardest day because, you know, you walk in and everybody's happy. No, not everybody's happy, but that's, that's the way it looks. Everybody's like, you know, rah, rah, Jesus... And sometimes we need some of that spirituality from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations to come through, which is even in tragedy, we are going to follow the one true living God. And I think that is certainly a lesson here where there's this great hope and expectation. I mean, Being Mary and getting this announcement, hey, you are the one. You're not a one, you're not in the line, you get to see it happen. And just immediately, turn her world turning upside down. You know, having to be careful about being a single girl, being pregnant, to now having to run for her life, to not even be able to go back to Bethlehem, but going back to to Galilee because you're still worried about you know the son of this guy. Um, To knowing that, man, my baby, yes, it's the Messiah, but the the messianic role is to die a suffering death, and so to know, man, I have a limited amount of time with my baby um, till they die. You know, same thing with Joseph. I mean, all of the characters in here, this is just a very raw story in terms of, again, we, we make it a cutesy pageant, but the reality is this is a story of deep tragedy, but through this tragedy, God is doing something through Christ. He's saving the world. And so, take, take hope through this story.
0: Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nation.